and welcome back to another episode. How are we getting on, guys? Great. How are you doing, Scott? Pleasure doing to have well. you on today. Can't complain. So today we're joined by the handsome Joss. <laughs> I would say your name other way around, Scott Johnston. How about you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott Johnston. I am a paleontologist. Specifically, I am a fossil preparator and a science communicator. Yeah, uh, it's very interesting stuff you do. Because, um, you know, we think about, you know, fossils being dug out of the ground and we don't really think about, you know what, like they have to be, they have to be framed and have all this kind of stuff going on. Um, so I guess tell us a bit about what you do. Like, what, what, when you get your hand, hands on one of these things, what do you do? So um, I always say that fossil prep is everything that happens after discovery and before display. But a lot of the things I work on don't go on display, so it's either display or into research. But if you guys have ever seen a dinosaur documentary or something like that, where they like find a fossil out in the field and they dig around it and stuff and start wrapping it in burlap and plaster and stuff big big we call those field jackets they help contain and protect the fossil while we transport it they wrap that stuff up and then they ship it off to a museum and then it gets into my hands assuming i'm also not the one who was out in the field who dug it up and did that in the first place uh and so it's my responsibility to i will cut open those field jackets and I'll start slowly removing the sediment and rock and all that stuff that's around the fossil. We call that the matrix. So I use progressively smaller and smaller tools the closer I get to something and it can take a really long time, but I'll try to get the fossil as pretty as I can, expose all the features that the researchers want me to expose, and then I'll make sure it is nicely supported and cradled for long-term storage because some of these things sit in storage collections for like decades, well, hundreds and hundreds of years. And we want to make sure that they don't fall apart under their own weight while they're sitting there and other future researchers can work on them. And I'll make molds and casts, so replicas of the fossils so they can go on display or we can send those to other museums so they can study them as well. You're right, you're, you're, you're okay. <laughs> Your camera turned off there for a sec. That was weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man. It sounds very delicate. I, I have a, I'm in possession of only one fossil and it got butchered. That's the reason I have it. Um, well, I got cracked in two. It was a trilobite. Um, oh. We had Jack, Jack Horner on. He said he, he showed he had one. His exact same thing was from Morocco. And when, when the person was doing this one, I don't know if the crack was already there, but at the back, like, I don't know, at the very back of the animal, it's just, they kind of, it's almost like they sanded it. Like it's just, this, it looks like plain stone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they really fucked it up. And there's obvious scratches where they tried to like make it look like it was still the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it must be, must be hard to explain if you ever butcher something or I'm sure you don't I, do that, but for your colleagues who may mess up, I need your assistance. Uh, how does that go along? I've actually, I've worked on several fossils that were worked on by previous preparators who either didn't have the tools or didn't have the knowledge that I have or that I have at my disposal and I've had to correct some past mistakes. A lot of them are from like really, really long time ago, previous preparators that no one really knows who they were or anything. And I'll get a fossil that like, someone went straight through the fossil into the rock on the other side or, cracked it in half and used a terrible glue that it's yellowing and cracking over time because it's mm. not archival. And I've had to take grinders to old glue and pick off it, uh, pick off old epoxy like manually so I can put it together with something that'll actually last. Uh, there's a lot of uh, paleont, there's a lot of fossil prep that is cursing the unknown names of previous preparators, but um that, that's something that we try to avoid nowadays. Uh, a lot of the aspects of fossil prep are meticulously recording everything you do to a fossil. So, uh, I mean, I guarantee I'm going to be one of those preparators who in 50, 100 years from now, people are looking at something I did and it was just like, what on earth was this guy thinking when he was doing that? What material did he use? Oh my God. And so we try to, we try to minimize that, but, uh, and, 
when it goes to my colleagues, my other preparators, all the ones I've worked with have been lovely, extremely qualified people. So I haven't had any issues with them personally. It's handy. It's handy. But yeah, like even like the quality that's expected now in comparison to like, how long have we had been looking at bones, like that kind of stuff? Not, well, we've been looking at bones for a while, but paleontology didn't really become a thing until like, I mean, dinosaurs were, weren't even named until like the 1840s. Like the first two dinosaurs that were actually determined to be dinosaurs were Iguanodon and Megalosaurus mm. in- And they were uh, terribly. 1920, uh, sorry, 1824 and 1825. So it hasn't been that long that we've known that dinosaurs were a thing. So it's just over 200 years now. Yeah, yeah, about, yeah, uh, about 200 years, yeah. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not very long, but uh, yeah, like the quality that's expected now, I'd say it's a lot, a lot higher than what was. I'd say when those lads were, were taking them out of the ground, they were manhandling them, something awful. They're sticking this and that together. Yeah. Uh, we, we also, we know to look for more things. Like uh, with the technology as it's been, changing and updating we're able to use different technologies to find out more things about our fossils like we're able to actually use chemical analysis to look at certain biochemicals in fossils and be able to find those and so a preparator like me needs to be mindful of what are the chemicals that we're using on these what are we doing to it so we don't potentially destroy future data from avenues that we don't know about yet but um like there have been many cases. One of my colleagues uh, who I worked with at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, uh, Dr. Emmanuel Chiap, he was the guy who brought Brontosaurus back in 2014. Um, he's been working on this material from a quarry out in Wyoming, these big long neck dinosaurs, sauropods, that mm. kind of like kind of like this guy, um, that the fossils were actually, it, it says in the field notes by Barnum Brown, who's a famous American paleontologist and fossil hunter, he's the one who discovered T-Rex, that a lot of them had uh, skin impressions and preserved skin on them. But at the time, they didn't think that was valuable. So they just went straight through it and got the bones out. And so nowadays we're like looking back at this stuff that people are doing in the 1930s and just going, oh my gosh, we could have learned so much. No. Yeah. Even actually just around that time with World War II, didn't like the only bones from a Spinosaurus get destroyed? Yes, yes, that, yes, yes. That was rough. That was rough. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's much more like that that happens. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Ernst Stromer is, uh, was the guy who discovered those. That was in 1912. He brought them back to the uh, Munich Museum and he wanted to, uh, and was going to study them. And they were the, yeah, they were the only ones known for like a hundred years. And That's when nice. the allies started bombing Germany, uh, his story is fantastic. Like uh, he actually, wasn't allowed to move his specimens out because the the head of the museum was a Nazi and he wasn't. So he was very critical of the Nazi party and stuff. So when the head of the museum was letting everybody get their stuff out, they were like, oh no, Stromer, you're gonna, gonna have to wait. Oh man, can't do it right now. And then it got bombed and the Spinosaurus and several others of his fossils just got completely obliterated. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we were talking before we got started here, like the discoveries they've made about that beast. Now that that's crazy. I'm, I'm gonna, oh my goodness, yes. I try to pull up a picture of what they the regular look like actually. Mm -hmm. like, now that's, oh, it's so cool. It's like a yourselves. goose, duck, crocodile monster. Dude. It's amazing. I haven't seen any pictures of it, but uh oh it's so cool. Is it <laughs> I'll pull up now? Yeah. It was the one that if you if you've seen Jurassic Park three first, I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> it's it's the one that is bigger than T Rex and kills T Rex and oh, like, yes, and yeah. like cracks oh, wow. its Jesus. skull and or cracks its neck and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so they, it they was, used to think something like this. Yes, and then this, and then this. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that we now know that you, you can see along the tail there that it has 
some those are called uh, spinous processes. They're the the bits that stick up from the vertebrae. So if like if you bend over and feel along your spine, you'll feel those little bumps there. Those are the same bits of the spine that we have, except on the back there on Spinosaurus, what gives it its name? It has that giant sail, and then the tail. It seems like they were also extended and acted as a sort of paddle. But yeah, it was a big big animal huge and it was uh piscivorous so it uh, that means it ate primarily fish uh mm -hmm. but i mean some of the fish that were living alongside it there were like uh coelacanths that were the size of small cars and sawfish that were yeah. like 10 15 feet long on capristis there yeah it, yeah it's a crazy beast but you know the, the idea that it might have been um like more aquatic than we initially believed when, when you look at something like this that, that makes a bit more sense because good luck getting around on land if you look like that yeah <laughs> like yeah it probably wasn't tiny it, it probably legs. could walk on land absolutely but it probably wasn't the fastest no. yeah i'd say it would probably move a bit like a crocodile only when it has <laughs> probably. to probably it probably a bit more like a like a waterfowl like a goose or a duck where like they, they're they can move on they're way better in the water but like they're a little awkward on land Mm. You, uh, like a goose or a duck that's the size of a like a school bus and a half and wants to eat you. It, it's not the case with like terror birds as well. Like they reckon they were they oh honk like gooses. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> oh, so, oh no no no. So I think what you're thinking of there's this one uh, there's this one. So the terror birds were this group of carnivorous. Uh, like mega carnivorous birds they were originally from south america and they actually went extinct when the uh when the sea levels dropped during the uh leading up to the ice age that caused central america to get connected between north and south america and that caused what we call the the great american interchange uh, the great american biotic interchange where we have like cats from north america and dogs moving down to south america and animals like uh, like the giant armadillos, like the and giant ground sloths and terror birds moving up into North America, and they actually died out during that. They couldn't compete with dogs and cats, but they were horrifying. Some of them were like nine feet tall and stuff. It was terrible. But uh, I think the one that you're thinking of, there was one that lived in, uh, there was one that lived in Australia, but it wasn't necessarily a terror bird. I forget exactly. So it looked the same, different family. Like it evolved separately. Yeah, mm -hmm. and okay. we think that that one was herbivorous, actually. So it was just, it was just like an ostrich, but bigger and really stocky. But I mean, I probably wouldn't want to tangle with it because, I mean, I know what giant, flightless, herbivorous birds live in Australia now, and I don't want to fight a cassowary. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a dodgy one right there. Oh yeah, we have but um. Yeah, that, you, you're, you've more of an expertise in that kind of area, that kind of area. Like after the dinosaurs died off, um, you know, you, you might throw us off guard a little bit with the dinosaurs behind you. But you're, um, I th you said you deal exclusively with um, post KT, uh, pretty much fossils, pretty much. Um, so most of the time when I've been working, uh, I actually I got my start at the University of Michigan and. While I was at the University of Michigan, our specialties there were basically mammoths, mastodons, and uh, the evolution of whales. So I've done a lot on mammoths and mastodons. Uh, yeah, I, as you say, I throw people off with all the dinosaur stuff around me, but it's also way more recognizable than if I had a mammoth tooth here, which I do have a cast of mammoth tooth around here somewhere, Dude, but it just kind of looks huge. like a blob. And, and unless you know what you're looking for, it's not exactly super recognizable, but like I've been on digs where we're finding mammoth material. Like there was, uh, when I was in college, uh, I was getting ready to go to class and I decided for some reason, I was like, hey, I'm gonna look nice today. So I put on like a nice white polo shirt, nice black jeans and stuff. And I was pouring myself a bowl of cereal after I had just gotten out of the shower. And I got a call from my mentor, Bill Sanders at the University of Michigan. He was like, Scott, if you get your ass here in the next 10 minutes, you can go dig up a mammoth. But uh, what? I'm like 25 minutes from the museum. He's like, I said 10 minutes and hung up. And then I just like, okay. And I ran over to the museum, popped my head into my professor's office. Hi, I'm not going to be at class today. I'm digging up a mammoth. Bye. I'll tell you about it tomorrow. And yeah, it was a farmer who uh, was putting in a tile drainage line in their 
uh, wheat field in Chelsea, Michigan, and hit a mammoth skull with a backhoe. And he gave us one day to dig the thing out because he was like, hey, I was doing this because I'm in the middle of harvest season. I need my field. I can't have people tramping all over my field. So yeah, he gave us a day to dig it out. And yeah, so I worked with um, Dan Fisher. He's one of the world's foremost experts in mammoths and mastodons. Helped him with that project and several others. And with the evolution of whales, uh, one of the big projects that I worked on was Basilosaurus. It's this we had this 36, uh, it was a 36 million year old, 45 foot long whale that was, it's so old, it still had back legs. Yeah. And that was fun. And it's got the basil name because it's long like a snake, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's it's Basilosaurus, I believe, translates to uh, Emperor, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, they uh, also the thought it was, lizard. yeah, they thought it was a reptile initially, didn't they? Yep, mm -hmm. exactly. They thought it was oh, a okay. giant, like, biblical sea snake at first. No. Have you ever <laughs> the killer whale scary? Look at this fucker. Oh yeah, exactly. It was that's just cute. evil. That's, hey, that's <laughs> those seen, that's um... specific. That's the actual species I worked on. So, yeah, Which it's one? super one? super cool. That one. Yep. Mm -hmm. Shit, that's fascinating. But actually, if you Age type in two? if you type in Basilosaurus Michigan, you'll see the exact one that I worked on. Minecraft. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to spell Michigan. I'm not a statesman. There you go. Hey, there it is. Which oh, one? Uh, the one on the left. Or the one right there. Yeah, that works. Oh, it's such a tiny picture. But, uh, <laughs> or that one where your mouse clicker is. That that would also be it. Perfect. There it is. The big long one. Dude, that's the one I helped make. The smaller one's a, a species called, Dor or a genus called Dorodon that lived alongside it. But yeah, I helped build that. That's an ugly guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, yeah, man, that's just, again, it's, it's insane. Uh, like you're living some kid's dream right now. Like for 14 year old, you must be so happy. Oh my, you're kidding. Five-year-old me is so happy. Mm. I, I actually, I started working in fossil prep when I was 14. Uh, yeah, I started volunteering at the university of Michigan, uh, because my dad worked there. He happened to know the head of the prep lab and just to like, get me out of the house during the summers and give me something to do. He asked if I could start volunteering there. And I found out later that he was convinced I would last like two to three weeks because it would be like, yeah, it's not Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, all that stuff. It's way more tedious and time consuming, but yeah, jokes on you, dad, 13 years later, I'm still doing it. Uh, I absolutely love it. We, we can talk about, you know, that, that kind of Jurassic Park kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I know there's, there's an effort in, in Russia at the moment. They were supposed to get on the show to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to give up the secrets. There's Pleistocene Park is a thing they want to do up there. Up there. That's kind Heard of crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and then you know, Jack Horner, who we've had him on the show. What a guy, mm -hmm. um, dude. Chicken. Chickenosaurus thing. <laughs> oh yeah, Chickenosaurus. Oh, that's just crazy. We we had a guy on. He's a flattered guy, and um, I tried to explain this thing to him at the end. Does he saying like evolution doesn't exist? Carbon dating is false. And I was like, you know, I have a friend and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of doing some stuff right now with bringing back uh, dinosaurs using blah, blah, blah in, in chickens. It's atavistic genes. And he's just like fake. <laughs> he's fake. And like a second later, he's like, I want to end. I want to stop the show. You can, you can see, <laughs> if you go back and watch that podcast, when he said that dinosaurs aren't real, you can see my temptation not to piss myself. He was like, it was just the most stupid shit I've heard. I don't know. Cause like, anyway, very real. Do you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but like, it's just amazing that like that kind of thing could be done um and it's something that would never have been attempted if we hadn't really gone and investigated dinosaurs but you know something that's unique about him is you know like what you're doing is like you're kind of preserving these fossils this fucker wants to go and crack them open and i think he's crazy for it like he was involved in one of the findings for like the first soft tissue ever found from dinosaurs was mm -hmm. a blood vessels or something some kind of proteins t-rex i want to say yes yeah mm -hmm. yes and yeah, he was well, he was the first guy to crack open the eggs as well. He got a lot of trouble for it. Yeah, he did that. Yeah. He's trying to say they're more bird-like and whatever, but yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, but I'm, destructive sampling is something that is pretty widely done in paleontology. We do it all the time. Uh, histology is something that we do where we'll cut open a 
uh, a, a bone of a dinosaur or any other prehistoric animal to see like the growth rings that are laid down to mm. see if we can find out how old the animal is or how it grew. And actually, uh, Dan Fisher, one of the professors I worked with at the University of Michigan, he one of his claims to fame is he likes to cut open mammoth tusks uh, because they are even better at that. We can get incredible resolution from the growth rings and mammoth tusks. And like we can get down to, if you have high enough magnification, you can get to almost, no, you can get to daily growth patterns. So you can tell almost how old to the day an animal is, except for the fact that mammoths use their tusks. So they wear down the tips of them. So we don't really get to know how old they fully are because we're losing some of that data. But we can get to the point where we can look we can pull the tusk out of the skull and look at the greater trends and go, oh, this mammoth died in the spring or this mammoth died in the fall or something like that. It, it's That's insane. Crazy. That's mad. Remember that guy who wanted to bring them back? No, he's an Asian elephant. I was about to bring yeah. it back. I was Didn't they stop him? Up, uh, Dolly, the sheep, and how long you could do something uh, I'm, like that. I'm not sure if they did stop him or not, but I well, mean, he went to do it a couple of years ago. I mean, never looked that up. Thomas, you, you had a question there about Dolly the sheep. Yeah, I was about to bring up like how, how long you could do something like Dolly the sheep where you could clone a mammoth, even. I mean, uh, I don't know because we would have to have. I, I mean, I'm I'm not a geneticist by any stretch of the imagination, but I know that there's a lot of issues with cloning. Uh, there's accelerated aging and other difficulties, but I know that that would be pretty tough, uh, especially because it's hard to have 100 percent uh, DNA, like. 100% recovery rate of DNA from anything, let alone like even in best conditions, DNA breaks down over time, let alone the really, really subpar conditions that we find most fossils in, uh, or even some of the ones that are frozen permafrost. But yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting, but the, the ones that I've heard of combining it with like uh, Asian elephant DNA, because Asian elephants are their closest genetic relatives, it would still never give us a like 100% pure mammoth. Yeah. Uh, it would always be some level of hybrid. So essentially, we'd just be making a very hairy Asian elephant. But <laughs> yeah, and the problem with that is a lot of them end up being infertile, and then it's just mm -hmm. it's a gimmick at that point. But George Church I mean, wants yeah. to use an artificial embryo to try to. Are you familiar with George Church? Uh, no, actually. He's like an American uh, geneticist, and he's a, he's heavily involved in the extinction efforts. I think he's involved with Jack Horner. But no, that's one thing I'll put up here now. You give me a sec. I've never pulled this much stuff up in my life. This is I might get used to this. I'll be Jamie, like Joe Rogan's Jamie. There you uh, go. Boom, boom, boom. It's up. Um, so here's the they already have progress on this. What the fuck? Oh, Jesus. Oh, they have completed steps. Oh, oh CRISPR stuff. Yeah, makes sense. Hmm. So they've gotten some mammoth-like cells. Mm. Uh, okay. Okay, and they're using mutations within the Asian elephant cells. So like trying to get extra hair growth, fat production, mm -hmm. climate adapt adaptations. Okay, the next step is... Yeah. Okay, that, that's too, that's too sciencey for me to understand. <laughs> <laughs> Go, well, Scott, mean, it, Scott, translate. Yeah. Uh, well, it, at least as far as my understanding, with doing some of this, uh, doing some of this CRISPR stuff is essentially modifying gene expression, but not exactly modifying how it would be passed down. So. I'm, I mean, I could be entirely wrong on this because, again, uh, genetics is not my wheelhouse. I work with fossils, but um, it seems like this it, modifying this expression for accelerated hair growth and stuff like that would just make it so if you had two of these like manufactured mammoths reproduce, they would just make an Asian elephant because they're just Asian elephants with weird. Should, should I check that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a go. Oh, if I have to. Ooh. Okay. Um, okay, so what am I looking up again? Uh, does 
You know, George, you're doing a real good job on this looking up thing. If you want to be more like Jamie, will I start talking about DMT? CRISPR <laughs> <laughs> uh, babies, what? I don't think you'd looked up the right thing. Although, no, CRISPR is actually modifying the DNA, isn't it? Yeah, I thought like if they're using a, a, vir a viral, or using a virus to just like plant genetic material wherever it's supposed to go or something. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that that is actually modifying. The yeah, DNA, I, so. I was thinking yeah. that would pass down, but you kind of put me off guard. I, no, I guess I guess it would. I, again, not not a geneticist, so not my yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but dude, it's, it's crazy like that we're at a point where they can consider these things, but they have to get through your your kind of field to understand that. They have to like do do so much research into these animals. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, dude, it's crazy. And then it's 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 even worse. Like there's kind of a guilt there that we killed off a lot of these things. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah we're dodgy feckers, so we are. Oh yeah, but uh, uh, I mean, not to like make make us seem like we're fine or anything, but I mean, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of all life on Earth has gone extinct. And unfortunately, the one of the one of my issues with some of the de-extinction efforts is that one, it's cool on paper and people might like it in a park, but some of uh, some of the propositions have been like essentially repopulating like lost ecosystems with animals and. I do not see a way that, it, like, people already in the United States have enough of a problem with putting wolves back in Yellowstone and, uh, like, oh, I think it was, like, last year or something that somewhere up in the Midwest they reintroduced wolves and, like, 50% yeah, of them were issue. dead within a year or something like that because people just kept shooting them. And wolves are just around, let alone going to the American people and saying, hey, we're reintroducing lions and uh cheetahs and stuff yeah. like hey the pronghorns have been getting off too easy for too long they're too fast for everything we need to reintroduce the american cheetah and yeah people would not like that and if you're not if you're only introducing those big charismatic megafauna like the mammoth and stuff like that you're going to destroy ecosystems because there's nothing to predate them and there's nothing and they're missing entire like sections off the family tree i mean sure. in the uk the largest uh the largest native predator is the red fox uk used to have uh lions and bears and stuff like that well actually the cave bears in the uk were I, I know a guy who's like big into the extinction and he wants to reintroduce uh lions back into like mainland europe and the uk Mm -hmm. I that's do scary. Not that that's that a terrible work. idea. But yeah. the, the, the exception here is, you know, it's not like there there is only like you know a fox up in Siberia where they put these things. They have a Siberian tiger, um, and then like we, we know like that nothing's up there like compressing the permafrost anymore. And if there if there were mammoths up there, they would be doing that again, which would slow down climate change. And you know there there is a predator there. Uh, you know it's again. That kind of depends. Mm. Uh, but like, yeah, what you're saying with the States, fucking put, put a lion or cheetah in there, go back to South America, put in the, like, the, yeah. the giant terror birds, people won't be too happy. Mm -hmm. Although, and there's also groups that have, a, well, pretty much no living relatives or the ones that we have are so distantly related that they couldn't effectively be reintroduced. Like the giant ground sloths. The only ground, uh, the only sloths we have right now are the two-toed and three-toed sloths that are this big and ridiculous. And aren't they like sloths. really separated as a group? That they're, they're not really. I, I mean, I don't really work with Xenarthrins, but uh, they. I think they are. I'm not 100 percent sure. I mean, there was there was a genus of like marine sloths. Like they got weird. Um, yeah. Or there's other groups. Like um, again, in the states, like we have the pronghorn antelope. It's not an antelope. It's actually the last member of its entire family. There used to be a bunch of different types, but we only have one now. So it's hard for us to reintroduce things that aren't around, really. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of need a relative. Um, yeah, but like, there's not much else we could kind of bring up because no, none of us are exactly experts. We'd just be three lads throwing around a bunch of <laughs> ideas. Um, I but I consider myself an expert now. I, I've watched 12 YouTube videos on this. Yeah, well, I also watched 12 on how they're not real, Thomas. So 
Actually, I watched I watch 13. Take that. There you go. All of which were over three minutes. Fair. Fair. Three um, minutes. Jeez, I can't even keep that. Fucking fair uh, fucks to you, man. Jeez. Thanks, man. No problem. But um, if, you, if you want to go on the, the line of just chatting pure garbage, or maybe it's not garbage, uh, what do you think about the idea of like these prehistoric cryptids, like people thinking that we still have some things hanging around? you think there's any room for that? And how no. far? No. Uh, the, the closest thing, the, the only cryptids that I could see really being a thing is, uh, uh, well, are things that are extinct much more recently like there was the there was a paper that came out relatively recently that said the thylacine the, uh, the yeah, in, in New uh, tiger could... down in mm-hmm. australia could possibly have theoretically existed until the 21st century but and it isn't necessarily that the one that we saw uh, the one that died in the zoo back in the 30s was the last one i mean in thinking about that that that'd be kind of unlikely but there is a chance that some could have existed for a while. There's a chance, like huge scare quotes, that uh, they could still be out there. I would love to see that. There was that footage that came out like a couple months ago that got like everybody really excited. And then it just turned out it was completely unrelated. Uh, well, they thought it was a thylacine, but it absolutely wasn't. But other things like the like Bigfoot or the like living dinosaurs or the Loch Ness monster. The dinosaur or like aquatic reptile, they would Mm -hmm. have to have some kind of descendants and hate to break it to you people. There can't only be one animal left in a species. Like you want, you think there's like a 65 million year old brontosaurus hiding around a place in the Congo? No. Nope. Uh, It's also one of the things that I think is kind of interesting on it is if you look back at a lot of the historical, uh, so two things on this. If you look back at a lot of the historical uh, depictions or uh, like descriptions of these animals, of these cryptids, then a lot of them are very different. Like they're like one of them says that oh the Loch Ness monster was snake-like. One of them says it has a head like a horse. One of them says like this or that or it, like all of these different descriptions. But as soon as one gets popular in the media, that's what everyone sees. Like yeah. now everyone thinks that the Loch Ness monster is an elasmosaurian. Please are you familiar with the, the with the the first depiction of it? That was like some kind of gelatinous blob. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, uh, or something like that. And it's the same thing with a lot of these, uh, with, with a lot of these other cryptid uh, remnant prehistoric creatures that like a lot of the descriptions are really broad initially. And then one person says, huh, that looks like a pterosaur. Huh, that looks like a theropod. And then all of them are just like, no, it's a theropod. That it's, oh, there was a quote I heard about this a little bit ago. That it's like, if it's... Um, if it's described, then it's written down, then it's history. And if it's written down and then it's described, then it's fantasy. And uh, so, and an- another thing that is difficult uh, on that case is that a lot of these so-called prehistoric creatures that are allegedly living for since the time of the dinosaurs, one thing that this has really highlighted is we would expect that the more that we're learning about prehistoric animals, the more understanding is changing and evolving um, over time that like, I mean, this field is made up of almost entirely of digging things up out of the rock, but it's not written in stone. Things are changing and evolving and living all the time that we would expect that, like the more we're learning about these the more it'd be like, huh, this is starting to sound like that thing that's living up in Canada or that thing in, in like the, in Loch Ness. Like we now have, are pretty sure that like the classic, like the, uh, it's the surgeon's photo where it's the neck sticking up like very swan-like out of the water like that. Plesiosaurs couldn't do that. Like they just don't have the musculature to do that. They, they yeah. don't have that adaptation. They're very flexible side to side, not up and down so much. But we would expect things to start converging. 
and they're not, let alone all the biological factors of they need to have a breeding population, they need to have enough uh, food to sustain them. Mm. Uh, a large enough population would mean that these animals would be able to be seen a whole lot more often. Uh, they would definitely have impacts on the environment. We would see dead ones. Mm. Uh, I mean, yeah, we keep finding new larger animals, but we don't really find anything that's sauropod size. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to hide. Uh, it's tough. But th th there was one that, that really got me when I, when I found out about it, and it made me kind of a bit more convinced. Uh, it was the fact that there was a non-avian uh, dinosaur leg bone found after the K2. Are you familiar with, I think it's called Quinornis? Uh, no, actually. I'm not familiar with that one. Jeez, I'm surprising a paleontologist. Well, you, you work in the field, not paleontologist. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's one thing. I'll see if I can pull it up. Um, yeah, um, I got the proper thing first. I wonder because I haven't. Uh, I wonder if there's some issues around that one because there are some places I've worked out in the Hell Creek. I've worked in places where I've seen the Cretaceous Paleogene boundary where the the Iridium Z coal laid down by the meteor, uh, and there are some areas where things have eroded and we find stuff that is above where it's supposed to be or below where it's supposed to be. So. It can be difficult. Okay, so it's a prehistoric bird genius. Okay, uh, it's a bird. Yeah. But what, okay, what, so it's uh, what, what's the distinction of it though? It's uh, uh non a different characteristics for they just in the juvenile of a modern bird is an adult and non-neornithidian. Oh, okay, so it's it's not it's not a non-avian dinosaur. It's just one of the last of the non-neornithine birds, which are the non-modern group of birds, apparently. Well, wouldn't that keep it out of the current distinction? No, no. Um, I, thought, I thought the avian version of, or the avian group is like very strict to only like one post-KT. Uh, no, um, because birds first evolved in the Jurassic period, 150 million years ago with Archaeopteryx. Uh, that's our first bird. There were full on birds, uh, throughout the uh, throughout the entirety of the Cretaceous, I mean, there were there were birds that we know that like you would travel back in time and look at it and just go, yeah, that that's just a bird that just looks like a bird. Uh, and for the for the whole Cretaceous period, we find birds that are like that, like even some of the ones that are kind of weird looking, like Ichthyornis that still had teeth. Otherwise, it kind of just looks like a turn mixed with a seagull so yeah but uh the only birds that we have nowadays are neornithine birds so that those are the crown group of birds those are modern birds as we call them but uh aves so the group birds can uh, contained several different families some of which are extinct now the so the non-neornithine birds would be ones that are not within that group they were still birds they were still very much birds but they and that means that they were still dinosaurs they just weren't non-avian dinosaurs so that one's a really cool one but it's not a non-avian it, it's, it's not what 14 year old me needs to hear no <laughs> uh, but it's, it's still cool that like something that wouldn't be considered as like the modern group it's got a little bit past you know it's like a little bit of it's a little chunk of the past mm -hmm. um you know because don't, don't they reckon like most of the what was it most of the birds that survived after kt extinction were what's it called like they were they were ground dwelling work ground dwelling birds that learned uh, to fly again uh i'm actually not a hundred percent versed on that because when I was working in the Cretaceous Paleo uh, with the Cretaceous Paleogene, I was working with um, Dr. Greg Wilson out of the University of Washington. It was my field class when I was uh, when I was in college, and he mostly focused on the mammals uh, that were impacted by the Cretaceous Paleogene, but um, uh, by the meteor impact and everything. So I'm not a hundred percent sure on the birds. Uh, that could be the case. Uh, I'd have to read up on that. But yeah, uh, I know that there were some uh, ground birds during the Cretaceous. I don't think that they were that common because a lot of those evolutionary or the ecological niches, so that like the job that an evolu uh, that an organism has in the environment, were taken up by the non-avian dinosaurs, and they have 
bit of a like 180 million year head start on them or, or well less than that but <laughs> yeah yeah sorry sorry i keep putting you out of your uh like your, oh, no your area there but um hey, i'm always learning so what, what do you exclusively work with then like at, at the moment what are you working on if you can say so at the moment, um, I'm not sure if I can 100% share it because uh, <laughs> be a little bit secretive. But right now, I'm actually doing contract prep uh, because, unfortunately, I actually got laid off from my job at the university. Uh, well, at the American Museum of Natural History because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, right. I was one of the more uh, I was one of the most recently hired, and so when uh, the the museum was projected to lose, like. 150 million dollars or something like that and uh they had to make some tough calls and unfortunately reverse seniority i was most recently hired so i was most recently let go but uh, it was a great job i loved working there still keep in contact with everyone there so after i got um after i got laid off i just decided that like hey i'm not gonna let the pandemic stop me my passion for this stuff is bigger than the pandemic so i put my feelers out there and i managed to find some contract work because even though these fossils have been sitting around for 300 million years they can't wait until someone gets a virus uh, until someone gets a vaccine can't wait for the end of a virus still gotta have work done on them so I used some of my contacts and managed to hook up with one of my uh, one of my colleagues who was on his way to go work in Texas uh, in one of their museums, and I met up with him to buy a uh, to buy this microscope for cash out of the back of his van in a Denny's parking lot in a truck stop off of I eighty. And I've been working on contract stuff since. So this is my lab. I work down here and I'm still able to do uh, the stuff that I love. And since then, I've also been doing uh, a lot of more science communication. I've always been really passionate about teaching people paleontology because it's something that I love. And as you guys have experienced during this, sometimes it's really dense and really tough to get through. Uh, there's a lot of big Latin words. There's a lot of big crazy concepts and stuff and everything has a name that's a mouthful and a half to pronounce. But so someone who has a bit of a background in it like me can really help people out understanding things. Mm -hmm. So uh, my girlfriend recommended that I start doing weekly Q and A's and I've loved having the questions on there. I, I do that in between when I'm working on my fossils. But yeah, it, it's been a bit like, I'm, I'm sorry I had to leave the American Museum of Natural History. Hope I'll be able to go back at some point. But uh, I've really loved being able to uh, do this stuff. Well, I, I hope I'll be able to go back or I'll find something else. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about that. But in another way, it kind of led you to where you are now, which is looking looking pretty good, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm having a blast. Like I'm helping people out, right? Uh, I I'm doing. I'm also doing some scientific advising for uh, places like TRX Dinosaurs that make uh, dinosaur puppets and stuff for education. And they do it good too. I, I check them out. Oh, they're great. I love that. I love their stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I, I met. Um, Keenan at a at a conference in Calgary uh, a couple of years ago, the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology conference. He's a great dude, and I've uh, been doing that. I've been doing other scientific consulting. I've been working with um, uh, uh, web comics like Dinosaur Comics on Instagram. Uh, if you guys have ever seen any uh, any of Andy's stuff, his stuff's great. I work with him sometimes. So getting more people interested in paleontology and teaching people. Uh, really making lemonade out of lemons, uh, and hey, whenever whenever things start opening up, I hope I'll be able to get back to uh, whichever museum I land at, and I'll be able to do this again in a lab and help uh, do what other people have done for me in my field of be a mentor, help people out, and stuff like that. But a lot of people in paleontology have had their research really affected by this. I have friends who are uh, PhD students who are trying to finish up their PhD in paleontology who've lost a year of their PhD work and have been told no we're not going to extend your your time here you get what you get you're going to have to work with a basically a year of not being in your lab 
deal with it. And, uh, or people who've had to cancel field plans who are coming up on the end of their tenure or the end of their position and aren't able to do the things that they want to do. So it's, it's been really affecting. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds pretty bad out there. Are you in a lot of I mean, it's or... getting better, but are you in bits and pieces. Or are you allowed to go out to restaurants and stuff? Are they open? Um, the, uh, some of them are in Michigan, I think. Uh, I, I don't think that we're allowed indoor seating yet, but we're actually having a spike at the moment. We're up a huge percentage of cases, and uh, both my parents have at least one uh, vaccine. Uh, my mom's getting her seconded a little bit. I still do not qualify yet, but hopefully at some point. But in the meantime, I still have my fossils. I go on uh, online dates with my girlfriend, Ray, who's still in New York City, which uh, sucks. I had to go back to Michigan, but hey, Ray. <laughs> and I hang out, play video games and stuff with my friends. But yeah, trying to make the best out of it. Uh, if I just keep sitting here wishing I could go out to restaurants or do stuff like that, then I'll just drive myself crazy. Yeah. Do you mind if I, if I ask with the whole online dating thing at the moment? Because yeah. a, a lot of people are dealing with that. I, I'm very fortunate I'm not. I think Thomas is in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, how's that, how's that affected you guys? Has that been rough? Because I it's guess you got, you got a lot more space between yourself and herself mm-hmm. uh, than we would with our significant others. Yeah, it's rough. I've managed to be able to visit her twice during the pandemic. Um, but I mean, it's a 600 mile drive. And it, uh, yeah, it's like a... You're a, supposed to say it's worth every second, Scott. Come it on. absolutely is. A hundred percent. I'd do it every weekend if I was allowed to. But uh, yeah, it's tough. Uh, but we try to make the best of it. We try to do whatever it is. Um like we'll have date nights really be a big thing and we'll spend hours together talking about things. We'll watch movies together uh, for Valentine's day. We had to spend Valentine's day 600 miles apart and we still managed to uh, even though I couldn't cook her dinner, like I would have really liked to, we both picked the same recipe and we both got out uh, the same stuff and we cooked stuff together uh, while being on FaceTime the whole time so we could share that experience together. Um, we had some games, yeah, movies, stuff like that. And yeah, it's it's hard. But again, if, if we really focus on, wow, this really sucks, then we're not going to be happy doing whatever we can mm-hmm. while we can. And I mean, when it really comes down to it, if we can make it through this, we're going to be pretty solid. But yeah, it was a it was a big change to go from I was literally a 15 minute walk away from her that she was like 10 blocks from me, uh, 11 blocks from me uh, in New York to being 600 miles away. We're still in the same time zone, which is nice, but yeah, it's it's hard. And uh, she just recently started up uh, being uh, she just got a job as a third grade teacher. So she's available whole lot less, but I'm proud that she's been able to still keep working and find something, even though, I mean, talk about careers that have been really affected by the pandemic. She went to school to be an actor and she finished her degree during the pandemic and Broadway shut down, Hollywood shut down, a lot of TV productions shut down that like she graduated with a degree in a field that doesn't exist right now that's the only way we've been able to get actors on the show (laughs) to get that they have the time now there's no excuses um yeah we've been fortunate in that way um if there are there are some benefits to this at the moment you know if if you if you wanted to do like what we're doing you can do it Mm -hmm. i know if if you wanted to focus on like remote uh research you could do it blah 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 but when it comes to like people who can't work remotely or you know even relationships it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a rough time and debt people you know like it's really it's pretty fucking bad but if there's any benefit at all mm-hmm. you know it's if you're able to ro- work remotely i guess you, you have more time to follow your passion or whatever mm-hmm. unfortunately um, you can't really work on a fossil remotely that makes it a little the, different the, Aren't you doing it like right now? Plays around More or less, but like, it's not like I can be working at a museum and like I'm, 
uh fortunate that i've actually through my 13 years in fossil prep had enough contacts that i could just very sketchily by a microscope out of the back of the van and uh get like tools of the trade like our air scribes which like i literally could not do this without this tool and have an air compressor and all that stuff um be able to actually work on my uh, work in my field then yeah this is tough and this is not something that a lot of people are able to do that yeah because like labs are very very specially designed i need to yeah. make sure i take special safety precautions while i'm working here yeah mm. well you may do it <laughs> but um if people right. want to check you out what can they do uh if people want to check me out you can find me on my instagram and twitter at mr dr professor johnston even though i do not have a phd and i'm not a professor it was just a name i had a long time ago that no one else had taken so unified marketing it's me on everything yeah. uh although i think i'm missing an the last o on my twitter but uh yeah i do weekly q a's on my instagram so you can come on by ask me any paleo questions you want i'll do my best to answer them uh, i post fossil fridays on fridays where i highlight specific fossils and teach you a little bit about weird animals and stuff like the one i had last week was uh uh epicyon the largest dog known that was like the size of a bear and it was a it was called dog. a bear dog right yeah oh no that's a different one that's amphicyon um that's yeah i know so crazy close so crazy close. scientific names <laughs> uh that one isn't a true dog they're their own group but, but they're, they're uh, from like the same one. group like bears cats dogs are from like the same yeah yeah of... that's uh carnivorans that's uh it's bears cats dogs seals sea lions stuff like that but not all not all of them have to be carnivores even though they're in a group called carnivorans naming's weird it's dumb yeah. <laughs> like how we have the bird hip dinosaurs the ornithischians and the lizard hip dinosaurs the sauruskians but birds are not bird hip dinosaurs they're lizard hip dinosaurs explain it's that one it's confusing oh we named them before we knew that, that they were a part of that group it was unfortunate anyway <laughs> there's not much you can do there but uh, really if, you, if people want to check you out they know where to find you scott it was a pleasure That's speaking to cool. you today yeah. so speaking with you guys too we're going to add this so um i guess if you if you got this far fair play to you Hope you enjoyed. Um, so take it handy. Good luck to you and stay away from yourself. All right. See you guys. Top of the morning, lads and ladies. Support for the Off the Irish podcast is now brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below the waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels, and you'll no longer need the look of the Irish with the ladies. Make every day feel like St. Patrick's Day for your balls with Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code IrishPod at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped and use code IRISHPOD. Use the right tools for the job and trim your pant potatoes.